When you think of music from the late 1980s and early 1990s, who do you think of? Most people would probably say Michael Jackson and Madonna, who truly defined a generation. But there's another talented and often misunderstood entertainer who may also come to mind. M.C. Hammer. Me and my sister's first introduction to music came in the form of records. We had a Fisher-Price record player that we listened to. We had a bunch of records including Disco Mickey Mouse, The Cabbage Patch Kids, and Rainbow Bright, to name a few. I actually fell on said record player, I flat on my face to be exact, while jumping on my sister's gold post bed to the sound of this music, which resulted in me having a huge black eye. But anyways, when we got older, we shifted to boom boxes and cassettes. I think my sister had a, a pink boom box to be exact. One cassette that we wore out both in our boom boxes and likely in my dad's car was MC Hammer's masterpiece, Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him, a staple in so many people's music collections and for many good reasons. Let's be honest. Whenever MC Hammer has been discussed in the last 10 to 15 years, it seems the focus is often on his outfits and how flashy they were and his unfortunate uh, bankruptcy situation. There's so much more to his story, though. MC Hammer is a man who chose to go down the right path, and on the way, he was relentless and persistent in the pursuit of achieving his dreams. I have found his story to be incredibly inspiring, and so much more than anything I was ever aware of. So pull on your high-waisted genie pants and excessive gold jewelry. Here we go. And welcome to the Pop Culture Retrospective Podcast. This show is dedicated to the memory of my sister Rebecca and her love for all things pop culture, especially memories from the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s. My name is Amy Lewis, and I am your host. You are tuning into episode number six MC Hammer, an icon of music in the late 80s and early 1990s. On today's show, you will learn all about MC Hammer's work ethic and how that led to his unbelievable success. You will also learn about what led to his decline in popularity and what he has been up to since his days lighting up stages all over the world. Stanley Kirk Burell was born on March 30, 1962, in Oakland, California. He grew up in a public housing complex with his eight other siblings, all crammed into a small apartment. His mother was a secretary and his dad was a professional poker player and a casino manager. There's a rumor that his father was actually addicted to gambling, which is part of the reason why the family was so poor and struggled with money. The 1960s and 1970s were an incredibly scary time to live in Oakland, California. Cocaine and heroin dealing, which was mainly facilitated by gangs, was on a significant incline. Many forms of crime also increased drastically. This resulted in the murder rate rising drastically. At one time, it was twice as high as New York City or San Francisco. The superintendent of schools in Oakland was assassinated in 1973. 
It was rumored that this happened because he wanted the schools to have some kind of identification system so that people who are not students, i.e. drug dealers, would not be able to access campus. He was assassinated by a group called the Symbionese Liberation Army, which was a left-wing extremist-slash-terrorist group. Despite all of this trouble in his community, Stanley would never forget where he came from. Stanley loved and played baseball all growing up. He excelled at it, and it kept him out of trouble. He was always a fan of the Oakland Athletics. At a young age, he was an incredible dancer. He would actually dance outside of the Oakland A Stadium to the music and style of James Brown. Fans going into the stadium were really impressed, and those performances often drew large crowds. Sometimes the players would see him walking in and would give him passes to the games. Soon his dancing skills caught the eye of one-time owner Charles O'Finley. One day, Stanley approached him, introduced himself, and asked if he could come inside and be Mr. Finley's guest. Finley said yes. He would eventually go on to be the Bat Boy, and that's where he got his nickname, from Reggie Jackson, who was a famous A's player, because he bore a striking resemblance to Hank the Hammer Aaron. After receiving that nickname, that's pretty much what he went by, and that's what I will be referring to him as for the rest of the show. And as a result of his position as a Bat Boy, he got to travel with the organization and became very close with the owner and with the team for many, many years. And he would continue to stay connected with the Oakland A's, which would prove to be extremely helpful in the pursuit of his dreams. Eventually, Hammer would go on to graduate from high school and enroll at a community college where he studied communications. His dream was to actually play professional baseball, but unfortunately that dream didn't come to fruition. So between feeling discouraged about that and not being invested in his studies, he decided to head home. In 1983, he decided to reevaluate things. His parents encouraged him to make a plan for his future. They didn't want him to go down the path that so many of his childhood friends had. Drawn to their earning potential, many of his friends got involved in the world of drugs. Hammer said that one of his motivations for not getting into a life of crime was his mother. He didn't want to break her heart. She had worked so hard to raise him and his siblings that he couldn't fathom disappointing her. Perhaps motivated by his parents, or the 1980 hit by the village people in the Navy, he decided to join the Navy. I'm guessing he was inspired by his parents, but I love the village people and that song, so. He served for three years in the Navy and was honorably discharged. During this time in the Navy, he wrote rap songs with his roommate. After the Navy, he formed the rap group Holy Ghost Boys, which was a sort of religious-oriented rap group. This group would go on to start developing the song, which would eventually be Pray, that would become one of MC Hammer's biggest hits, but we'll get to that later. And by the way, that song is awesome. This is when Hammer's pursuit of being a rapper really started to gain some serious momentum. He actually wanted to start producing rap albums. Shortly after the Navy, he met his future wife. Her name is Stephanie, and they met in church. She was in town visiting some family, and he kind of convinced her to go out with him and stay back, and within six months, they were married. And they would eventually go on to have five children. 
He eventually decided that he wanted to produce his own rap album and start his own record company as he was sort of a struggling artist, to say the least. He reached out to two friends he had on the Oakland A's, outfielders Mike Davis and Dwayne Murphy. He was hoping they could help him with the funds to start this passion project. There's an endearing story I read about where Hammer sort of invited himself to Mike Davis's house. I think it may have been during um, spring training. He followed him to wherever spring training was. And he wanted to pitch him this idea about starting his own record company. In front of Davis and his wife, he pushed back a table and showed them his amazing dance skills. And Davis cut him a check right then and there. Hammer's debut album was Feel My Power. It was released in 1987 on his record label. The label was named Bust It Records. Later, I think it was called Bustin, B-U-S-T-I-N apostrophe. He worked tirelessly to sell this album. He would go to nightclubs, ask the DJ to play it, and he would get on the dance floor and showcase his unbelievable and magnetic dance moves. Other patrons at the club would want to dance next to him to learn his moves because they were so impressive and he was so skilled. I didn't come across any information that said that MC Hammer received dance lessons when he was growing up. It's my understanding that he was pretty much all self-taught, which is incredible. Part of the reason for him dancing in nightclubs as well was for him to hone his skills as an entertainer. He would also kind of finagle himself onto radio stations to hawk his music. That resulted in some radio play. He sold his music out of the trunk of his car and eventually sold 60,000 copies of that record. One night, while out at a dance club, someone from Capitol Records happened to be there, and she heard his music and saw his dance skills and how much people were attracted to him, and she knew that this young man was destined for stardom. She later met with her boss at Capitol Records and said, we have got to sign this guy. After some contract negotiations, he eventually signed and his career started to take off. Some of that negotiation resulted in him getting a $750,000 bonus. When I signed on to be an educator, I believe I got a handshake. His first album with Capitol Records was called Let's Get It Started, which was sort of a revised version of Feel My Power. It was released in 1988 and featured successful hits including Turn This Mother Out, Mother being spelled M-U-T-H-A, They Put Me in the Mix, and Let's Get It Started. This success was just the beginning. Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him was released in 1990 by Capitol Records, and it proved to be a huge year for MC Hammer. It featured hit songs such as You Can't Touch This, which sampled Rick James' Super Freak, and Pray, which sampled When Doves Cry by Prince. It has sold over 18 million copies as of the recording of this show. It was the first rap album to reach diamond status. It also includes Dancing Machine, which was a remake or sampling of the original classic song by the Jackson 5, and he also sampled Mercy Me by Marvin Gaye in his song Help the Children. The Help the Children video is, of course, very 90s, but it 
really spreads a strong message about the senseless violence that can impact and sadly kill innocent bystanders like young children when they are caught in the crossfire of gun violence. The song, You Can't Touch This, spent about six months on the Billboard charts. MC Hammer made at least $33 million off of this album. MC Hammer truly became a household name. December 7th of 1990 became MC Hammer Day in L.A. A movie was also released that coincided with this album, and it featured many of MC Hammer's famous music videos from the Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Em album. Some of the memorable music videos were You Can't Touch This, which we talked about that song. It starts with his name being announced at the Grammys over and over and over again. It features all of our very favorite 90s fashions, including shoulder pads, his signature genie pants, biker shorts to wear when you are actually not biking, spandex onesies, baseball shirts with the A's logo on it, of course, rat tails, gold jewelry, and tube televisions. And in case you are not aware, you cannot donate tube televisions to Goodwill anymore. There's the sign. You can't do it. They're just too old and too heavy and too big. It also showed the music video for Prey, which is one of my all-time favorite MC Hammer songs, which I'm sure I'll be bringing up multiple times throughout this show. In this music video, it shows MC Hammer walking through what appears to be maybe his old neighborhood or a set resembling his old neighborhood in between dance breaks of him dancing in neon green genie pants in front of a fountain or red genie pants in a warehouse we see him trying to help intervene with some troubled people in his community. Guys gambling, for example, young kids selling drugs. He eventually breaks up a fight between two groups of angry-looking men by saying, we need to pray just to make it today. You know, and I've actually used this tactic in my work. I've worked in education for about 10 years at the high school level. And, you know, one time I was in the cafeteria and there was a fight breaking out between two different groups of students. And I walked over to them, said, fellas, 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 what's going on over here? Is there a problem? And they were, you know, instigating each other and saying things that were upsetting one another. And I said, calm down, calm down. We need to pray just to make it today. And incredibly, the fight dissipated, and everybody walked back to their seats. It was unbelievable. That didn't happen, but the thought of it just made me laugh. So anyways, he went on a world tour, including Europe, Asia, Russia, and Australia. He was incredibly meticulous about his performances. He was an unbelievable performer and dancer. He was described as electrifying, spectacular. In my head, looking back, I thought, didn't he just do like the running man and stuff like that? Oh, no, 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 no. Way more than that. Way more than that. And all the while, while he was performing, he was also rapping. And how he didn't sound so completely out of breath like he just ran a marathon is unbelievable and just speaks to how talented of an entertainer he really was and is. He treated every performance as if it were his first. He would work on his dance moves for about eight hours a day, as well as run four miles each day. 
And this was the expectation for his dancers as well. And if you look at any footage of him from that time period, you can tell that he is in incredible shape and took what he did very seriously. He would also review tape of his performances to critique it, to see what he did well and what he needed to do to improve. Some of the lyrics that I I think really speak to MC Hammer's career and and why he worked so hard goes a little something like this. All my life, I wanted to make it to the top. Some said I wouldn't. They told me no, but I didn't stop. Working hard, making those moves every day, and on my knees every night, you know I pray. But those lyrics, again, I think just really speak to his dedication to what he was doing and how passionate he was about it. 1991 was another big year for MC Hammer. He dropped the MC from his stage name and was now called Just Hammer. He released his next album, Too Legit to Quit, and he was under a lot of pressure for this album to live up to the success of his previous album. It sold 5 million copies, and although that is a significant and huge number, everyone seemed to compare it to his previous album and looked at, looked at it like a failure. But 5 million copies of an album, that is incredible. That album features hit songs such as Too Legit to Quit, Do Not Pass Me By, and This Is The Way We Roll. The music video for Too Legit to Quit is known for being one of the most expensive music videos ever produced, and it is about 14 and a half minutes long. The expense of the music video may have had to do with the elevator that goes in and out of burning flames in the video, the dumbbells that a woman uses to work out with on a weight bench, which really has no correlation to the music video whatsoever, the matching Letterman jackets that everybody was wearing, the dumpster fire that illuminates a dance break, the many smoke machines that must have been used, or maybe the special effects like the sewer cap that blasts off into the sky. All of that stuff adds up, especially the weight bench and the dumbbells, which just makes me laugh. There were some celebrity cameos in the video, including the kind of the biggest one, which was James Brown, who was a huge inspiration to Hammer growing up. Uh, Also, there were some well-known athletes at the time, including Deion Sanders, Isaiah Thomas, and one of our very favorite mulleted and roid-raging athletes, Jose Canseco. There's a name that I haven't heard in a while. This is where we learned about the two legit-to-quit hand symbols. You know, you do the two fingers up, then the L, then the two fingers up again, and then kind of running your hand in front of your face, symbolizing quit. It's good stuff. Good stuff. To this day, my dad likes to tell everyone, including people he barely knows, that he's too legit to quit. I'm not making that up. I think that this pissed off my sister for a good 20 to 25 years. Also in 1991, Mattel released the MC Hammer Doll, one that came with a little bedazzled boombox that played, very poorly I might add, some of the beats from the You Can't Touch This song. Another one came with a cassette tape. The doll could, of course, do the splits. I'll, uh, I'll post a commercial for the doll in the show notes for sure. It's pretty, pretty funny. This time was probably the peak of Hammer's income, and certainly he spent his money on some extravagant stuff. Uh, he and his wife purchased a $10 million home at the top of his, at the height of his popularity. It overlooked his old neighborhood. 
And actually, several years beforehand, he used to point to that hill when he was with his wife and say, you know, one day we're going to live there, which is pretty amazing. The house featured $1 million worth of marble that was imported from Italy, saltwater fish tanks, neon lights, and tons of water features. It also had a bathtub that could seat eight people, which that's very important to, you know, have seven other people besides yourself in the bathtub. And they spent $68,000 on mirrors. I think I've spent six to eight dollars on mirrors my whole life. He also invested about $1 million in thoroughbred horses, which was sort of encouraged by his dad and his brother. He also loved classic cars. Individually, they didn't cost very much, but he had, by some reports, 17 cars. Sometimes he traveled in his own personal airplane, and he told Oprah Winfrey when he was on her show that he had over 200 outfits. The list of all the extravagant stuff is certainly a lot, but what really did him in was actually his generosity. At one time, MC Hammer had about 200 employees working with him, and that payroll was a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars each month. When he toured, he had about 15 dancers on the stage at a time, as well as 15 to 20 band members. Sometimes there were 50 people on stage at one time. All of his dancers and singers came from the inner city neighborhood that he did. If he met someone that didn't have a job, he would hire them to keep them off of the street and pay their salary. He would find something for them to do. He did run quite a tight ship when he was on tour. There were curfews for the other people in the show. He did bed checks to make sure they were in their hotel rooms, so on and so forth. He said he didn't want to have to call up the families of any member of his touring entourage and tell them that something bad happened to their son or daughter at 4 a.m. in the morning. Even when MC Hammer was not on tour, he still paid their salaries, paid rent, paid for clothing, paid for food. He didn't want them to result to unsafe methods to earn money. Also around this time, he got a lot of endorsement deals with several well-known companies, including Pepsi, Taco Bell, and British Knights. That's a blast from the past. Uh, His face was also adorned on lunchboxes. He also had a cartoon on Saturday mornings called Hammer Man that lasted for just one year. He got a lot of flack for this, even though his character was one of the very few black superheroes on TV. Now, granted, the show was horrible, and the illustrations were god-awful, but still, he got a lot of flack for it. Between the endorsements and the cartoon, he started being labeled a sellout and started to lose fans left and right. With all of his endorsement deals, though, a certain amount of the money he received every time from these endorsements was utilized for inner-city causes but the cartoon was, I guess, the icing on the cake for a lot of his fans. And it was never really noted how much money he gave back to his community. And I think the same thing happened to Tony Hawk. People really labeled him as being a sellout, but all the products that he endorsed, he actually likes and uses or eats himself. And a lot of the money that he earned from those endorsements he used to build skate parks, but nobody wants to talk about that. They just label famous people as being sellouts. 
maybe one of the biggest slaps in the face was from the show in Living Color, which was a great show. But um, Tommy Davidson, who was a great impressionist, he did really good ones of Sammy Davis Jr. and Stevie Wonder. He's a really talented comedian and uh, impersonated MC Hammer in his You Can't Touch This video. The parody places a lot of emphasis on his genie pants, of course, and the pants eventually end up going over his head and he falls off the music video set while saying, uh-oh, 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 uh-oh. I watched the video recently on YouTube. I'll make sure to post that in the show notes. And someone made a comment somewhat recently on that clip that said, I gotta wear a diaper every time I see this. It's still hilarious. I mean, it was funny, but that's uh, that's an interesting comment. We'll uh, we'll leave that at that. In Living Color had some memorable parodies, which will certainly be referenced on future shows. Also around this time, gangsta gangsta rap started to become increasingly more popular, and MC Hammer was sometimes the subject of ridicule from his kind of tougher peers due to his endorsement deals and for making rap music more mainstream or more pop-oriented. He was the subject of some insults and lyrics of rap songs from groups such as A Tribe Called Quest and in music videos. One hip-hop group named Third Bass put aviator glasses on top of a waist-high hammer and proceeded to knock it over in one of their music videos. Very famous rapper Ice Cube had someone dressed as MC Hammer in a music video for the song True to the Game. In one shot, the impersonator is dressed in street clothes and then he spins around and is all of a sudden in a sparkling outfit with the classic baggy pants on. Here are some of the Ice Cube lyrics from that song, which definitely appear to be aimed at MC Hammer. When you first started rhyming, it started off slow, and then you start climbing. But it wasn't fast enough, I guess, so you gave your other style a test. You was hardcore hip-hop. Now look at yourself, boy. You done flip-flopped. Giving our music away to the mainstream? Don't you know they ain't down with the team? They just sent the boss over, put a bug in your ear, and now you crossed over on MTV, but they don't care. Interestingly enough, Ice Cube would eventually go on to also be a sellout, as there were a number of Coors Light beer commercials that he had a starring role in. I mean, I'm not a big drinker, especially not a beer drinker, but Coors Light? Ugh. I mean, that is really selling out, because that beer tastes terrible. Hammer wasn't completely innocent either, though. He had several diss tracks aimed at rappers like Redman and Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest, and he made negative comments toward Run DMC. In 1992, he went on a Too Legit to Quit tour. Boys to Men opened for him. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. When he returned from the Too Legit to Quit tour, he learned that all of his earnings had essentially been wiped out this decline would continue. Perhaps due to the criticism he was receiving for being a sellout and maybe too squeaky clean, he released an album called The Funky Headhunter in 1994 and dropped the MC from his name. He was a bit more critical of other rappers on this album, and his language was a bit more aggressive, I would say, compared to his other albums. This album was not nearly as successful as his previous ones. It generated some relatively popular songs. Who could forget Pumps in a Bump? He had a somewhat risque music video for Pumps in a Bump, which had him in a 
I believe it was a zebra print Speedo. I'm, I can't make this up. That music video was actually banned from MTV. They had to make a new one. There was also a song called It's All Good, which is where that catchphrase allegedly came from. I've been using that for a long time. Who knew? All roads lead to MC Hammer. He changed up his outfits as well during this time. He traded his genie pants for baggy jeans and added a knit cap instead of gold rim glasses and dressed a bit more casually and danced around in Timberland boots. This shift really didn't work for MC Hammer, and it really went against everything he stood for. He has gone on to release several more albums over the years, but the ones he is most known for we've already discussed. In 1996, he filed for bankruptcy. He was not as down and out as he was portrayed in the media, but he was definitely struggling with a lot of debt. He had to sell his dream home at a loss, unfortunately. In addition to paying for all the luxuries, he was still paying for all those salaries, which again was a big reason why he lost so much money. He also got into some trouble for copyright infringement on some of his songs. All of those cases were settled, but some were, of course, at a cost to him or resulted in him getting a cut to his royalties. It seemed as quickly as he rose to fame, he went down just as fast. More recently, MC Hammer has gone on several tours. He's reconnected with Boys to Men, and he's also toured with Vanilla Ice. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. In 2012, he had a pretty amazing performance with the Korean pop star Psy on the American Music Awards. You may remember Psy, he had that YouTube hit with Gagnum Style. It was a dance that many people, including celebrities, tried to replicate. They performed together with Psy's, you know, really well-known hit, and Hammer joined in and performed Too Legit to Quit. It's been viewed 16 million times. I realized that MC Hammer was 50 years old when this collaboration happened, and when you see him performing, you'd never know that he was 50. He had just as much charisma and energy and dance skills that he had 25 years prior. He continues to be a very spiritual individual and places God at the top of his priority list. I believe he's also an ordained minister, I think. He has also invested in a lot of tech startups and continues to do work that aims to help and encourage young kids. He has often said that he has no regrets about his past and, you know, how he spent his money. And it seems like he is in a good place now, and I haven't heard much about any money woes as of late. In some ways, it's sort of understandable why he ended up struggling with money. He really had no example growing up of how to handle income because he grew up with so little. If the stories about his father's gambling and mismanagement of money are true, I mean, it just all kind of makes a lot of sense. I imagine exploding the way he did back then was sort of a shock to the system, and he went overboard quickly without realizing it until it was too late. And I think he, you know, just really wanted to help people, but ended up helping too many people. Regardless of all that, though, MC Hammer has certainly left his mark on music, entertainment, Christianity, and of course, music videos. Some fun facts I learned about MC Hammer during my research. For one, he there was a movie made about his life for VH1 called Too Legit to Quit. I believe that was released in 2001. Vanilla Ice allegedly once said that he was a better dancer than MC Hammer. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it. My grandma can dance better than Vanilla Ice. Jeez. 
Some of the money that Hammer earned from his album, Let's Get It Started, he used to put a recording studio in the back of his tour bus, which he used to record music for his second album. What do you do when you go over a big bump? How does that work? Maybe that's where the inspiration for Bumps and a Bump came from. Oh, geez. Jokes are getting bad. His music videos had a huge impact on MTV. They didn't play a ton of rap videos until MC Hammer came on the scene. Elmo from Sesame Street impersonated MC Hammer once in a segment where he was named MC Elmo. He contributed a song called This Is What We Do to the soundtrack of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live-action movie, one of my favorites. At one time, MC Hammer was known as rap music's most positive role model. Due to his upbringing, he wanted to present a clean image. He didn't have any vulgarity in his lyrics or swear words. He wanted to make a difference with his music. I think the music video for Prey really shows what he was hoping to do with his words. Another fact is he vowed to have at least one song dedicated to God on each album. He has many celebrity friends. Some of those include James Brown, Prince, Snoop Dogg, Michael Jackson, Tiger Woods, Mike Tyson, and Warren G. Clearly, he had a lot of connections with a lot of famous people and actually garnered a lot of respect from the rap community and music community, despite all of the other controversy with the diss tracks and things of that nature. I hope you've enjoyed this look back on the life, music, and perseverance, really, of MC Hammer. Younger generations may never know the true magnitude of the phenomenon that was MC Hammer. There is no question that despite the ridicule he endured, and dished out at times, he was truly a trailblazer when it comes to the rise in popularity of rap music. If you are enjoying the Pop Culture Retrospective podcast, please tell your family and tell your friends. Consider subscribing on whatever podcast platform you use. I hope that you will join me for my next show, where we'll be discussing one of my sister's biggest celebrity crushes, the ageless John Stamos. He ages like a fine wine, really and truly. But for now, though, be kind, be safe, and hold on to your memories. <laughs>